Let's open in the first Samuel chapter 22. First Samuel 22. Uh, and uh, we, we want to pick up where we left off last week, looking at the life and ministry of, of Samuel, of David rather. And I believe this is on page 265 of your pew Bibles. Um, somewhere around there, I believe. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. The writer of 1 Samuel writes on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Father, we do ask, as always, you would open our hearts that we would receive your word, our, our mind that we would understand it, and our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your word, our mouths that we would speak the hope of the truth of the gospel, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience. Lord, as we think about these, these caves, may we uh, learn to look up as we learn to look out. Guide us through this text. May your spirit Draw us to obedience. We may live to your glory. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you have a specific place of solitude? Maybe it's a certain room that, uh, you know, you put a sign on the door when, and it says, do not enter at the risk of your own life. You know, mama needs a few minutes away from the children or or maybe it's a certain place of a vacation, near a beach or, or somewhere that is particularly important to you that, that if you just need to get away for a day or get away for a few hours, you, you, you have that, that special place. When, when we were growing up, if, if I was uh, uh, getting really frustrated and angry or, or, or whatever it might be, uh, if, if there would be a few times that I would go and we grew up on a farm. It wasn't our farm, but we grew up on a farm. And uh, I would go and find a hay bale far away, as far away as I could get without uh, thinking that mom and dad or whoever didn't think I'd ran away. I'd, I'd go and find that hay bale, climb to the top of it and just sit. That was, that was my place of solitude. It allowed me to think through some things, allowed me to calm down a little bit and, and just, just figure all of that stuff sort of out. Well, in, in the, what we have here in this scene is David finding such a place of solitude. Consider what it is that we've seen in the story of David. Ever since Samuel uh, consecrated him to be king, he may have thought he was on the fast track of being the next monarch of Israel. After all, he not only was consecrated by the prophet and judge of Israel, but then he turns around and, and kills a, a giant. That seemed kind of cool. And then that gets him into the, 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 the administration of the king where he's serving under him and, and even marries the king's daughter. So he has some right to the throne, no, certainly not as as much as Jonathan, he's got some right to the throne. And, and then all of a sudden, everything starts collapsing around him. The king turns against him. His, his wife can't help him. Jonathan does all that he can, but, but is limited in what he is able to do. And now he is on the run. He, he is a fugitive from the law. The king wants him dead. And so what he's done is he, he keeps turning to people. He keeps turning to policies. He keeps turning to places. And all of them... Uh, are, are, are insufficient for his needs. And so now what he must do 
is resort to solitude. Everywhere he goes, he is not safe. He will either be estranged by people he trusts or he will endanger those whom he comes across. And so we see in these two verses, what we see is the future king of Israel in solitude. Notice how it starts here in the first part of verse 1 with David's cave. Now, he, we saw in chapter 21 that David flees first to Nob and then to Gath. Remember, Gath is, is where the uh, 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 Goliath is from. Now he finds himself in a place called Adullam. Now, Adullam has a, a, a somewhat of a significant history in the Old Testament. Uh, during the age of the patriarchs, it was a Canaanite city. You get that in Genesis 38. Joshua captured it during his takeover. Canaan. Uh, You see that in Joshua 12. Later, after the the age of David and Solomon, Solomon's son Rehoboam will fortify this city and make it an important uh, place with the uh, 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 place of defense for the people of Israel. And uh, other Jewish leaders used it for various purposes until it was eventually destroyed by the Assyrians. And to this day, you can go to the ancient city of Adullam. And guess what you find outside the city of Adullam? Caves. And, and some of these are quite large. In fact, there is evidence that they are large enough that you can house the 400 people mentioned here. Uh, they're still around, and, and you can walk through them, and, and you can sort of take yourself back into the time of David. So David has traveled about 10 miles southeast from Gath, where, where he slew Goliath, and, and Adullam is in between uh, Gath on the one end and Bethlehem on the other. So his home is on one end, Goliath's home is on the other, and here he is right in the middle. Now, in the Old Testament... Caves serve uh, for for several purposes, Uh, even in the New Testament. One would be a place of refuge if you're on the run or if you're in danger. Uh, Others would use it for for fortresses and whatnot. Let me give you a few examples of this, just just to round out your your, your biblical understanding. In Genesis 19, uh, uh, Lot and and his his, his daughters, because his wife... Uh, committed assault. <laughs> that one wasn't funny. You don't have to laugh. But, but his, his wife doesn't survive all that. So it's, it's Lot and his daughters, and they end up staying at some caves. Likewise, in Joshua 6, the power of the Midians uh, prevailed against Israel because Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens, which were the mountains and the caves of the strongholds. Here they are fleeing from the Midians. Likewise, in 1 Samuel 13, when the men of Israel saw they were in a strait, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and thickets and, and cliffs and cellars and in pits. Again, it is a place of refuge. We could even look at 1 Kings 18, when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. We saw this a few years ago. Obadiah, uh, probably not the same Obadiah as, as the book, uh, took a hundred prophets and hid them um, by fifties in in caves, and then we see in uh, um, you, you see the same thing also in uh, Hebrews eleven, right? That that, that, that praises the uh, uh, saints of the old. Sometimes they had to hide themselves in caves and whatnot. Well, it is no accident then that in his lowest of moments, uh, David will find himself in a cave. And he certainly finds himself in that that sort of cave. And it is in this cave that David will actually, uh, David will uh, 
pen several psalms. The first is in Psalm 142. We turn to Psalm 142 uh, with me. Psalm 142. You'll notice there in the subscript a mascal, which is probably an instrument or, or some sort of musical note, of David when he was in the cave. This is a prayer. So he turns a prayer into a song. Notice that, that David does two things in the song. We won't spend a lot of time on it. I just want to highlight it. In the first four verses, David prays honestly to God. It says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains for me. No one cares for my soul. Can I give you some insight from the Bible about prayer? You should pray honestly before God. For one, he kind of knows what's already on your heart. So what are you hiding? Right? And, and David does that here, doesn't he? David says, Lord, I want to lay out before you the burdens of my soul, the sorrow of, of my experience. I feel like I've been completely abandoned. There is no hope of refuge for me. So here he is in this cave. And what is it he's praying out to God? I am desperately alone. I'm trapped in sorrow. You, you've called me to this and look what's happened to me as a result. It would have been better if you had never called me to be a king. I could be a shepherd and be left alone. There is no one here for me. But then notice the, the, the tone turns in Psalm 42, where David goes from praying honestly to praying hopefully in verses 5 to 7. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. Notice again, this is not David as king looking back at this experience. This is David who is a fugitive living through this experience. He begins by praying honestly, God, I am broken. God, I am lonely. God, I am in sorrow. But then he prays with hope. God, you are my refuge. Deliver me for your kingdom and for your sake. Now we've already have seen David become the sort of man that he, he, he needs to become. And through these experiences, David becomes the sort of king that God uh, calls him to be. But you remember what he did uh, last week in chapter 21. When he flees as a fugitive from Saul, he, he chooses policy and he chooses planning as his refuge. What I'll do is I'll go over here to Nob. I'll talk to the priest there, right? He likes my family, and we can work something out. He'll give me a weapon. He'll give me food. I'll have everything I need to, to survive. And what does he discover? It wasn't sufficient enough. And that's going to come back to haunt him later in this chapter. Then he goes to Gath. He says, look, if I'm an enemy of the state, I might as well go to where the enemy of my enemy is now my friend. And so I'm going to go to, to Gath, and there I'm going to pledge my allegiance to them. I'll become a mercenary to them, and then I'll be safe. Then you realize I'm actually in danger. 
So he has to escape that because David does in chapter 21, we all tend to do. He trusts his planning and he trusts in policy. But now what he does is he trusts in Christ as his refuge. Now that is a big difference between David and Saul, isn't it? Saul inverts his depression and turns it into violence. David transforms his depression into opportunities into spiritual intimacy and real lasting hope. So we see David alone in this cave, but you notice that the text changed almost immediately. What we just see here is a half a verse. David is alone in a cave in Adullam, but in that cave is so much. But notice we move from David's cave to David's charge in the rest of verse one going on into verse two. Depression, loneliness, sorrow, it can create a strong feeling of isolation in each of us. Even when confronted with the reality that we are not the first to experience this, we convince ourselves that our experiences, our circumstances are unique and everlasting. Here I am with great sorrow and melancholy, and there is nothing that will break me out of this change. And so we, we dive deeper into that loneliness, deeper into that isolation, thinking that, that we'll never be breaking free. We think that we will forever be like this. And so the more we feel isolated, the more we internalize melancholy, the deeper we fall into sort of loneliness. And so if you're still in verse uh, or chapter, uh, they're not chapters, they're Psalms. In Psalm 142, you, you'll see that David uh, shares this, doesn't he? Look to the right and see, there is none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Now, remember, if you are struggling with areas of sorrow and melancholy and bitterness and depression, you need to know, first of all, you are not the first person in the world to go through this. In fact, you need to notice here that if you know your Bible, David isn't the only person in the Bible to experience this. When we study the, the story of Elijah, we see that Elijah goes from this great mountaintop, literal mountaintop experience. Remember, he calls down fire from heaven. I've never done that, but that would sound like, sound like something that would be like really cool. Look, if I ever call down fire from heaven, it'll be in my biography that not even my mother would read, right? It will be put in there, right? That just sounds Awesome, right? I mean, it would make cooking a lot easier. And so he does this, and we would expect, you know, now Elijah has this great mountaintop experience, right? He's the dude. It was on YouTube and everything. Now everyone's going to follow him. And what happens? He, he falls into the trap of depression. And so we get this in Psalm, or 1 Kings 19. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Notice here, Elijah does precisely what David does. In this moment of sorrow, he runs to isolation and there believes the lie he's all alone. He's all alone. It's as if he is rewriting Psalm 142, 1-4 for himself. This is the pattern we see in life. 
See, it is not uncommon for the people of God to struggle with despair. But the people of God must always know we are never alone. The hope of Psalm 142 is not, hey, you know, I have these moments like David. It is rather, may I like David cry out there in verse 5, you are my refuge, you are my portion in the land of living. Verse 7, the righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. And guess what happens in this story? Guess what happens? You go back to, for, to 1 Samuel 22, and the rest of it says, and so he is in the cave of Adullam, and when his brothers and all his house, father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Isn't that striking? He was writing this psalm about the righteous will surround me. I will not be alone. And in the next verse of this passage, what does we read? He wasn't alone. In the midst of his despair, God sends to him a familiar face. They went down there to him. Notice here that his family, his father and his brothers, don't call David out of the cave first. They go into the cave where David is to be. They go down to him. So amid his despair and sorrow, God sends Jesse and his household to him. Now remember who this crew is. They're his brothers. That should be sufficient to know who this crew is, right? I mean, I, mean, I love my brother and sister. We have a history, right? I mean, let's, let's be honest. And David has a history with his brothers, don't he? You remember in, 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 in uh, uh, 1 Samuel 16, so we see, first of all, that in, amid his despair, God sends people to David. And so we see that with his brothers, what happens in chapter 16, right? Samuel's going to come, and he's going to anoint uh, a David to be king, but no one knows it's David. Samuel doesn't know it's, it's David. So, so Jesse lines all the bros up, right? There they are, just lined up in all their glory, dressed, you know, their military outfit. You know, they, they, they just got it all. They, they may even shade for the occasion. They had it. And Samuel's going to look at this guy. He looks the part, man. I saw his movie. He'd be perfect. And, and God's like, nah, this ain't it. He goes, the next guy, the next guy, the next guy, and on and on. All of a sudden, Samuel's starting to ask, well, God told me it's going to be from this family. And I went through all the brothers you tell me none of these are it so he's like well are there any missing you got any out of college or something that i need to know about is there any other brothers like oh yeah we forgot about little davy right he's down there at the barn but don't worry about him he's not king material it's not king material so they have to go drag him up and it is at that moment little davy is consecrated by saying we immediately get an idea of what David's brothers really think about David. But it didn't just stop there. In, in the story with um, uh, uh, in the story of, uh, of David and Goliath in chapter 17, uh, uh, I think I wrote 16, is actually in chapter 17, David Goliath. Remember that uh, David shows up as a delivery boy. He's bringing some, some bread and milk, basically. And Eliab and the other brothers, remember, they say they become angry at David and say, why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? You can't even take care of a handful of lambs. <laughs> we can't trust you with nothing. I know your presumption and the evil of your heart. You've come down to see the battle. You've come to be a spectator. Not a soldier. 
This is what the brothers think of David. And what we can tell is probably what the father thinks of David. And yet here, something has changed. The brothers and the father come and meet David in the gate. Can I tell you two things that changed? The first thing that changed was the politics. Think about it. If the king is willing to slay his son because he hates David so much, he'll kill David's family because he hates David so much. Several years ago, when we lived in Breckenridge County, a guy uh, broke out of prison. And he actually did it behind our house. Right? There was a little gravel road. Uh, there was a creek down there. And, and it was right behind our house. Now, you couldn't just, I mean, you could go behind our house and do it. But not in a truck, you won't. But, but it, was, it happened right behind our house. And, and he, he grew up in not far from where the church was. We lived about a mile from the church. And, and it was a really scary moment. I still remember my wife waking up in the morning. I had gotten a text or a news thing or something. And uh, my wife walks in the living room, which is a giant window, and I'm armed. Right? <laughs> it's just like, I don't know what's going on, right? <laughs> well, I got my weapon. I don't ever get the weapons out, right? And, and so she, she, give me details now, okay? Uh, but I, I remember... Uh, uh, talking to a police officer. He says, let me give you a little insight with fugitives. The first people you go to check on is the people they love the most. Friends and family. Every fugitive, friends and family. You go to where they grew up. You go to where, where, where they live and, and you see how they've been there and you stake out the place because 90% of the time, they're going to swing by at some point. They're going to make some contact at some points. And they found him in that general area of where you grew up, not far from the church. It's a scary time for us. So too, if you're David and you're a fugitive, right? The, the, the assumption is you're going to go to Bethlehem where, where, where you're, you're going to be welcomed with open arms. And it's striking David hasn't gone there. But, but you can see that Jesse and the boys know if David is a fugitive, we're not safe. And what they do here essentially in coming to David and giving loyalty to David, they exchange their, their uniform that is owned by Saul in favor of, of, of one that is loyal to David. The politics change, but I don't think it's just the politics. It's also the spiritual changes going on here. Perhaps by this time, David's family realized that the consecration of Samuel on David will indeed culminate in his crowning. After all, this is the guy that for, one, for, for a while soothed the soul of a madman. This is the, the guy who, when no one else would be willing to do it, took down a giant. This is the guy who is still alive, though Saul wants him dead. He's proven himself, even as a captain of the military, to be a man worth following. But little does David know. But God is raising an army for David that will march with him to his throne. What we see here, however, is the gracious care of God amid David's sorrow. In his moment of lowliness, God sends him friendly faces willing to climb into a cave with him. Don't underestimate that God sends people. God sends people we love and who will care for us. That means that you need to understand and never underestimate the ministry of friendship and the ministry of fellowship. Look, you right now could be an answer to prayer for someone, whether or not you know it. By your generosity of grace, your generosity of presence, your generosity of charity, you could be an answer to prayer to someone. 
I don't know if Jesse and the boys know the spiritual turmoil that David is under, but I do know God used them as an answer to his prayer. God, I am all alone. There is no one here with me. And then there's a knock on the cave door. Your family's here. And they're willing to crawl in the cave. So you won't have to be alone in it. God sends people. But he doesn't just send his family. Notice there in verse 2. Everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gather there with David. Now that is a motley crew, isn't it? I mean, you're going to raise up an army. These guys are ready to throw down, right? So we see that those who are in distress, this describes those who are opposed, impoverished, and even victimized by the system, the corruption of Saul. Those who are in debt, obviously. And then then everyone who is bitter in soul, literally embittered. And it describes those who are waiting for change. By the way, this is the same word we see in 1 Samuel 1, the story of Hannah. Remember, Hannah is crying out to God that she would be blessed with a child. And the text says, she was deeply distressed and prayed the Lord and wept bitterly. It's the same word used here. Bitterly. She wants things to change. So here is David's first army as a fugitive, 400 guys, right? I don't know anything about armies, but that sounds like a good start. I, I, I don't know. And our home base is a cave. I don't know if that's a good start, but you got to start somewhere, right? I mean, if Amazon can start out of a garage and Google and everyone else, I guess David can start out of a cave. I don't know which one is, is more impressive. This, this past few weeks, I've, I've been watching, uh, I would say my favorite musical, but it's like the only one I like, right? So, so I, I guess it would be my favorite, but, but I don't like musicals. I, I struggle with the idea of when in life do people just break out in song, right? You know, here's my grocery list. Let me sing it to you, right? You know, drop the beat, Sivo, right? I, I just don't get that. But one musical I do like is Les Miserables. It's a great story of redemption when Jean Valjean rips up the certificate of debt that he is, he is a criminal. He adopts a new identity because of the grace shown to him by the priest. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel and identity. I get a little lost with the French Revolution because I'm an American, right? We did it right. But nevertheless, it is a, it is a, it is a great story. Uh, 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 Story even even beyond the musical, but my probably my favorite song, my new favorite song, is and, and we've been singing at the house because it's really catchy. So I hope to ruin your day with this. But it, but it's the same sort of setting that that David is in. Do you hear the people sing, singing a song of angry men? It is the music of the people who will not be slaves again. When the beating of your heart echoes the beating of the drums, there is a life about to start. When tomorrow comes, will you join in our crusade? Who will be strong and stand with me beyond the barricade? Is there a world you long to see? Then join in the fight that will give you the right to be free. Oh, you can, you can kind of see David doing that, don't you? Hey, you guys, tired of paying those high taxes? <laughs> Do you hear the people sing, singing a song, right? right? You guys, you, you sort of tired of the system, right? Do, do you hear the people sing? David is gathering for himself this this motley crew that he will lead. And that's the second thing. God doesn't just send people to us amid our sorrow. God sends his responsibility even amid our sorrow. Notice what what is going on here. While he is seeking isolation, and, and in that isolation, the temptation is to drown in your sorrows. What happens? The Lord gives him a charge. You, David, were called to lead. 
not to drown. You must lead these people. You see, if David can't be trusted with the 400, he won't be, he won't be trusted with the entire nation. You must lead. And among these 400 men will be David's mighty men of valor. They are the most loyal men David will have to the day of his death. They show up all the time. They do the, the cool stuff for David. They are SEAL Team 6, and they've been with David from the very beginning. And what a reminder this is of leadership, isn't it? People, I've learned, are always looking for and in need of leadership. And I believe it is imperative for the people of God to be willing to lead in whatever capacity it might be, to be willing to lead. And you all know I, I referee on the side because I don't feel like I get criticized enough as a minister. And so, so I love to, to referee soccer. And, um, and through that role, particularly at the YMCA, I've, I've done some training of, of brand new young referees who are still naive, right? Oh, I'll never make a mistake. <laughs> yeah, you won't survive the three-year-old, brother. <laughs> I mean, you wait until the helicopter mom and the heat comes out on that field, right? You just wait. Son. But one of the things I've noticed, particularly with young men, young men today, is they are scared to death to make a decision. It's striking. You've been given a whistle. You've been given authority. Go make a decision. Now, if you made the wrong decision, referee, don't say you made a wrong decision, right? You know, I'm trying to teach them to be good politicians. But, but, but what I found is, is, is they, they're, they're afraid to take positions of authority. Now, part of this is because we live in an age where authority is automatically bad, right? And, and that's, that's the problem. That's not a Christian worldview. What we believe in is that God calls people to leadership. And leaders, re- leadership requires both vision and character. Vision without character will always lead in a disaster. Character without vision won't go nowhere. Leadership requires both vision and character. But, but I, I just, I'm struck, but why are so many people today afraid to lead? Guess what? You will be criticized. Back at the TV, a little, little secret here. You'll be criticized even if you don't lead. It is human to criticize. How many people in your life you criticize because you're just bored and you're a terrible person? Hey, you don't have to be in leadership to be criticized. So step up and lead. You're going to be criticized anyways. Why are we so afraid to lead? Well, we see that God not only meets David where he is, but he calls David out from that position of sorrow. I I want us in, in conclusion to look at two things that we can learn from David here as briefly as we can. The first thing we need to see here is that in amid our sorrow, amid our despair, amid our melancholy, may we learn to look up. I mentioned Psalm 142, that David writes it amid this moment, but it's not the only psalm he writes in this moment. Turn with me to Psalm 57. I think it'd be good for you to to see it. Psalm 57. The subscript says, To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, it's probably a tune, and miktam, of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Notice how it begins in the first three verses. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for you and my soul, for in you my soul takes refuge. 
In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge to the storms of destruction passed by. I love that language. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. What does David do amid his sorrow? He turns to Christ. He turns to his refuge. This is the lesson David learned in chapter 21, wasn't it? He trusted in policy. He trusted in in weapons. Now he must trust in Christ. In chapter 21, he looked for a sword. Now in chapter 22, as revealed in these Psalms, he turns to a Savior. You see, you can either worry or you can worship. You will either worry or you will worship. Notice where he goes. Skip down to verse 7, just for the sake of time. Verse 7 of, of Psalm 57. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Notice he says, I will sing to the point that the dawn will rise. And if, if, if we take the poetry far enough, it may be that he realizes he is in the dark. After all, he is in a cave. The dawn can't get into the cave. And he says, I will sing to the point that that light will shine. And that may be literal light, the dawn will come, or it be a spiritual light that will no longer feel as if I am in darkness. You will either worry or you will worship. And the difference will be whether you look in or whether you will look up. It's a huge difference there. But it isn't just that God calls us to look up amid our sorrow, but he also calls us to look out amid our sorrow. Spend all your time on your burdens and sorrows and and, and you will benefit no one. You can spend your entire life saying, woe is me. And you will not bless a single soul beginning with your own. Why must we spend our days trapped in such slavery? Learn from the difficult moments and focus on serving and being a blessing to others. If you want to be rich, happy, and joyful, it comes down to loving one another. Loving one another. The great commandment we saw in, the, in our, our Sunday school classes, of course, love your neighbor as yourself. It's striking. Jesus doesn't say, when you have a good day, love each other. When things are going well, love each other. When, when you just feel you know, happy and kicking your heels as you go off to work, then I command you to love each other. No, no, no. The command is love each other. And here's one of the benefits of it. You will, you will focus less on what isn't going well and more on God using you in this broken world. Don't just look up. That's the first step. Look out. After all, isn't this what we learn from Christ? See, David had a cave. The son of David had a garden. And there in that garden does he not cry out to God, take this cup from me. It is too great for me, but your will be done. And having surrendered to the will and glory of God for his life, even if it meant his suffering and death, Jesus then turns around and goes back to the disciples and prepares them for what is coming. 
See, when he looks up amid his sorrow, he then can look out to be a blessing to others. Which will you choose? To look in or to look up and out? In October of 1967, a man decided he couldn't take it anymore. Drugs had destroyed his body, losing weight at an alarming rate. His marriage was in shambles. His daughters were estranged from him. And all the talent he'd been given, he had just squandered. He was ready to give up. Armed with only a flashlight, he went to a local cave known as Nickajack Cave, still around, you go visit it. He left the headlights of his truck on so he could see a little bit. Crawled into a cave to the point where he couldn't walk anymore. So he, he, he got on hands and knees and crawled even deeper into the cave. And eventually, he, he stopped in the corner of that cave in a small hole where no one would find him. And after two hours, the battery of the truck died and he was finally in absolute darkness. He said, that was exactly the way I felt. In complete and utter darkness. Quote, I had wasted my life. And there he said he would, he would just wait until he died. But he said, but something strange happened to me that, in mid that darkness. I had thought the Lord had abandoned me because I had abandoned him. But amid that darkness, in that cave, I felt this, this unique and special presence of God. Though I had abandoned him, it was clear to me in that moment that God had not abandoned me. And there he grabbed his flashlight and started a long trek outside of that cave, a new man. And to his surprise, when he walked out of the mouth of that cave, he discovered his mother and his wife were looking for him. And they were right there. The man will go on to be quite famous. And he would record his most famous album. He was a live album. It was Johnny Cash, live, at Folsom Prison. It is in this moment his life turned around. And it happened in a cave. But God, God. Look, maybe you don't have a place of solitude, a cave or a hay bale or something like that, but I'm willing to bet there is a cave you find yourself drifting into quite often. A cave of sorrow or despair or loneliness or uncertainty or doubt or fear or shame or something. The good news of the gospel is that Christ has taken all of that upon himself. He's taken all of that darkness upon himself so that you no longer have to. If you will look up at the cross, he'll lead you out of your cave. If only you would come and embrace him. Let's pray.